that the people of Israel have now been delivered out of Egypt. They've been brought through the sea. And now they're starting this journey to the promised land with God going through the wilderness. And last week we saw how they had the dilemma of not having any food. And so God rained down bread from heaven to provide for them. Even though they were grumbling and complaining and they were doubting God, he provided for them. And he gave them very specific instructions about how they were to gather the food. He told them, you go out every morning and you gather as much as you need, as much as you can eat. But on Friday, what were you supposed to do? Anybody remember? You gather twice as much because Saturday was the Sabbath and you were not to work on the Sabbath day, but God was going to provide for you ahead of time so that you can rest. And as we come to our text this morning, we get to see Israel's first Sabbath. We get to see how well it goes. And this morning, I want us to learn from their example. You see, God is trying to instruct his people how they are to live with this rhythm of work and rest, how to live with a constant remembrance of his goodness and his faithfulness in their lives. And this is going to be new for them because Pharaoh didn't give them a Sabbath. There are no days off when you're a slave in Egypt, but God is showing them this is what life looks like in my kingdom. And in the same way, we need to learn what it looks like in our own lives to live with this God-ordained rhythm of work and rest, to live with this remembrance and his promises. We desperately need that in our culture because if there's anything that's true of our culture, it's this. We are so stinking busy all the time. We are so busy as a people. If you ask someone how they're doing, I guarantee you this happened as you're walking through the parking lot, as you're walking in the door, as you're bumping into somebody to get your cup of coffee this morning. Hey, how you doing? How was your week? Oh, I'm busy. How are you doing? I'm staying busy. I guarantee you, you probably said it. You probably heard it. And that's become a normal thing. We don't bat an eye when we hear that. It's a normal expected response. And some of us might even think that's a virtue. We might even think that our busyness is something to be boasted about. Other people might look at how busy we are and be like, wow, you must be important. But here's the deal. I believe that while, let me give this caveat right up front, God created us to work and to work hard. That laziness is a sin. And when we talk about rest, if you haven't worked, then that rest is not really biblical rest. It's more laziness, right? Like we were created to work and to work hard. However, God has created us to live within the limits that he has placed on us as human beings. He has called us to live with this biblical rhythm of work and rest that he has ordained. And when we neglect to live our lives the way that our creator has designed us to function, it will lead to physical and spiritual and emotional disaster in our lives. But why? Why are we so busy all the time? Well, one reason might be maybe we're overworked. Maybe we don't know how to say no. Maybe we say yes to too many things. We've taken on too many projects. We have too much going on so that we've left no margin in our lives and in our schedules for rest. And now I get it. There are some seasons of life where that might be necessary. For a season of life, I just got to put my head down. I got to get through this. For me, that's called seminary. I got one year left. I have the lights at the end of the tunnel. I can finish this thing up. But the thing about seasons is that they come to an end eventually. And we're not created to live our lives with this 24-7 work. So maybe we're busy because we're overworked or maybe we're busy because we're distracted. It's not that we have too many legitimate things going on that is keeping us too busy. It's that we're filling up our time with a bunch of junk that's not accomplishing anything. And so we're busy with things that don't matter. 
What might that be? I don't know. The average American adult spends almost four hours a day on their phone. The average American also spends about three hours watching TV. You know, so I'm not good at math, but let's do a little bit, okay? Let's say you sleep eight hours a night and let's say you work eight hours a day and then you spend four hours on your phone and then you spend three hours watching TV. For you math whizzes out there, how many hours in a day does that leave left? One hour. Maybe we're busy because we spend our lives staring at little boxes. Or final reason why we might be busy, maybe we're overworked, maybe we're distracted, or worst of all, maybe we're proud. Maybe we're arrogant. Maybe we are control freaks who believe that everything in my life depends on me. And if I try to pry my fingers off the steering wheel of life for even one minute, everything will fall apart. So I can't stop. I constantly feel this need to go, 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 whether it's to prove myself to myself and other people or because I need more and more and more. John Ortberg put it this way. Hurry is not just a disordered schedule. Hurry is a disordered heart. So where does this leave us? It leaves us with a gracious invitation from our God, where instead of living our lives at this frantic pace that leaves no room for authentic relationships with God and with other people, what if we were invited to live with the gift and the discipline of rest? What if God is inviting us into this rhythm, this ancient rhythm that goes all the way back to the seventh day of creation, that shows us the way that he intended for us to live our lives? What if we took time to remember the goodness and the provision of God instead of distracting and amusing ourselves to death? This is what God was trying to teach Israel in this passage. He's trying to show them, this is what life is like in my kingdom. I've heard one preacher say before, God wasn't just getting Israel out of Egypt. He was trying to get the Egypt out of Israel. And in the same way with us, God does not just save us out of the world, but he needs to get worldliness out of us. The values of our materialistic and consumeristic culture that make it hard for us to take a break and rest and remember God's goodness. This is the point that God needed to teach Israel. And it's the point that you and I need to learn this morning. We should enjoy God's gift of rest and remember his provision. That's the main point. We should enjoy God's gift of rest and remember his provision. So with this in mind, let's take a look at this text together. Exodus chapter 16, we'll start in verse 22. On the sixth day, they gathered twice as much bread, two omers each. And when all the leaders of the congregation came and told Moses, he said to them, this is what the Lord has commanded. Tomorrow is a day of solemn rest a holy Sabbath to the Lord. Bake what you will bake and boil what you will boil and all that is left over lay aside to keep till morning. And they laid it aside till the morning as Moses commanded them and it did not stink and there were no worms in it. Moses said, eat it today for today is a Sabbath to the Lord. Today you will not find it in the field. Six days you shall gather it. But on the seventh day, which is a Sabbath, there will be none. And so, Father, we thank you for your holy, inspired, inerrant word this morning. We thank you that it is true. We thank you that it is life-changing. Lord, we confess how often our schedules fail to align with the values that you have taught us in your word. So, Father, teach us how to order our time in a way that glorifies you so that we can rest and remember your goodness. Lord, we love you. We worship you. Teach us from your word this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. What we just read about in this passage is the Sabbath commanded. We see the Sabbath 
commanded. So Moses had already given them this instruction. We read it last week. But then the leaders come back to him and says, hey, the people are gathering twice as much. And Moses is like, yeah, that's the point, guys. Gather this twice that you need because, and this is how he describes it. It's a day of solemn rest. It is a holy Sabbath to the Lord. Now, he didn't just say it's the Sabbath. It's a solemn rest and it is a holy day to the Lord. There's great emphasis on the importance and the holiness and the sacredness of this day. And now I've used that word Sabbath a couple of times, and let's take a moment to define it. What is the Sabbath? Well, the word in Hebrew literally means to stop, to stop. The Sabbath day was a day that God ordained. It was Saturday in the Old Testament, this day that God ordained to be the seventh day, the day that we stopped, we ceased from our ordinary labors, and we devoted the day to rest, worship, and refreshment. We're going to talk about the Ten Commandments in a couple of weeks, so we'll get to where God enshrined that in one of the Ten Commandments in the Fourth Commandment in a couple of weeks. But it's important to emphasize now that this goes all the way back to the first week in human history. This goes all the way back to creation. Genesis 2 says this, Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it, God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. Now, how many of y'all know that God doesn't get tired? God doesn't need a break. He wasn't like, ooh, I'm beat. I just don't want to sleep in tomorrow. No, the reality is God did that for our sake. He did that to teach us something, to show us this rhythm that he has installed in the very fabric of the universe of work and rest. And I want you to notice the kindness of God in commanding the Sabbath. What a great command this is. Go into work tomorrow and imagine if your boss says, hey, listen, I just want you to start taking an extra day off a week and I'm going to pay you for it. There you go, sir. Yes, sir. Like that's a great command. Notice the kindness of God here. And this is an important point for us to understand more broadly. God's commands are always grounded in his kindness. God's laws, God's rules and scripture are for our good because he is a kind and loving father that knows what's best for us. And way too often, we look at God's rules in the Bible and we think that he's some cosmic killjoy who is just giving us all these rules because he doesn't want us to have any fun. That could not be further from the truth. And when we think that way, we are maligning the very gracious character of our God. He loves us and all of his rules are because he made the world. He knows how it's supposed to work. And his rules are meant to lead us into fullness of joy, not to restrict our joy. The Sabbath is no different. So we see the Sabbath commanded for their good. How does Israel respond? Well, that's when we see the Sabbath violated. Verse 27. On the seventh day, some of the people went out to gather, but they found none. And the Lord said to Moses, how long will you refuse to keep my commandments and my laws? See, the Lord has given you the Sabbath. Therefore, on the sixth day, he gives you bread for two days. Remain each of you in his place. Let no one go out of his place on the seventh day. So the people rested on the seventh day. Now, I know we're shocked at this point, uh, but the people still don't get it. God had commanded them to rest on the seventh day. He gave them their provision the day before, but some of them still went out to gather. 
You know, there's this little phrase in Romans where Paul says the law came in to increase the trespass. What does that mean? I think it's because in our sinful human nature, there's almost something about laws that makes us want to break it. And I got toddlers, so I get to see this up close. Like when we tell them not to do something, it makes them want to do it. Or think about it this way. Megan and I went on a anniversary trip to Lorraine Caverns a couple of years ago. Beautiful place. If you've ever been there. But does anyone know what the number one rule is? Don't touch anything, right? The oil from your skin, it can break down the rocks. It's bad, all that stuff. And so there's signs everywhere. And the tour guide starts this thing with this whole speech. Now, listen, don't touch anything. And guess what happens? As soon as they turn their back, we watched it several times. People are like, just wanting to touch everything. There's something about this rebelliousness that is inherent in us that's called sin. So when we hear a command from God, it almost makes us want to break it. This is exactly what happens here. God gives them the Sabbath. They violate the Sabbath. He was crystal clear and they disobeyed. And we need to remember verse 29, God has given you the Sabbath as a gift. Instead of receiving that gift with gratitude, they decided that God could not be trusted or maybe that he was kidding around. Well, I mean, why would they even do this? Maybe some of them thought, you know, I just need to make sure that me and my family have what we need. I know what God said, but maybe I'll just check. Maybe there'll be some manna out there. Maybe I'll just check because God can't be trusted. Maybe others of them thought, you know, God, you know, he's not really to be taken seriously. He's not really that holy. Sure, he'll just wink at it. It's not a big deal. I'll just go out and get a little extra because I'm still hungry. I need more for my family. Whatever the motive might've been, the point here is that they violated the clear directive of God. And it makes me wonder when we disobey God's word, when we know what it says and we do otherwise, why? Is it because we believe God can't be trusted? Is it because we believe he's really not that holy and he really won't judge sin? Friends, you know that both of those things are not true. That this is both the holy and the gracious God and we can trust him. And the story concludes with God's provision remembered. Verse 31. Now the house of Israel called its name manna. It was like coriander seed, white, and the taste of it was like wafers made with honey. And Moses said, this is what the Lord has commanded. Let an omer of it be kept throughout your generations so that they may see the bread with which I fed you in the wilderness when I brought you out of the land of Egypt. And Moses said to Aaron, take a jar and put an omer of manna in it and place it before the Lord to be kept throughout your generations. As the Lord commanded Moses, as the Lord commanded Moses, so Aaron placed it before the testimony to be kept. The people of Israel ate the manna 40 years till they came to a habitable land. They ate the manna till they came to the border of the land of Canaan. And Ophir is the 10th part of an ephah. So he starts in verse 31. He's describing what the manna is like. And now that wasn't for their sake. It's for ours because they knew what it was like. They ate it. Uh, but you know, you ever see those things where it's like, it's only available for a limited time in a restaurant or something like that. That's the case with the manna. Namely, it's only available for 40 years, like ever. So this is not something you can't go to Walmart and buy some manna or anything. It was only available at this time. That's why he took the time to describe it for our sake. You know, it was like wafers made with honey. Now, I think it's significant that he mentions honey. And here's why. They didn't have refined sugar in the ancient world. So what was the sweetest thing that you could find in nature? Honey. In other words, I think this is Moses' way of telling us, hey guys, this stuff was really good. It's not as if God rained down crusty, stale, moldy bread from heaven. 
It was like when you see the hot now sign at Krispy Kreme, like raining down from heaven or like, you know, the Texas roadhouse rolls with the cinnamon and sugar and the butter and all that. People are like, mm, that's really good. Yeah, that's what God was raining down from heaven. Not literally that, but something that good, I think. This is an important point for us, guys. God's provision is good. He's a good father who knows how to give us good things that are for our good. It's an aspect of his kindness. And it makes me even more frustrated with them when they get so tired of it later. But they were commanded to keep some manna in a jar for all generations. This implies that God's going to miraculously keep the worms out. And this was to be a memorial for the people of God's faithfulness and provision. So take some manna, put it in a jar. They're going to keep it in the Ark of the Covenant. And every time they saw that, they would remember God's provision in their lives. So we've walked through this story together. We've seen what happened. And so I want to transition now and I want to take the rest of the sermon to show us two primary ways that we can apply this to our lives today. And the first is this. We need to learn God's rhythm of rest. We need to learn God's rhythm of rest. Just as the people of Israel were commanded to rest, we need to learn what it looks like for us as Christians to rest today. As I already mentioned in the intro, uh, rest presupposes work, right? We work hard for the glory of God. We work and we work hard, but we also need to live within this rhythm that God himself has established of rest. And so, man, there's so much here that we could talk about. We're actually going to talk a little more about the Sabbath in a couple of weeks when we get to the Ten Commandments. But let me give you a few things that I think we need to understand about the Sabbath as Christians. First and foremost, let's talk about it theologically for just a moment. The Sabbath ultimately is fulfilled in Christ. Ultimately, the Sabbath is fulfilled in Christ. It is something that points forward to the finished work of Christ, to the rest that we have in Christ, the rest that he gives us. You can write this down. I don't have time to go there, but Hebrews chapter four, okay? You can read Hebrews chapter four, and it's gonna talk a little bit about what that means, that Christ is our Sabbath rest. But there's an important theological question that we need to deal with. I'm gonna deal with it in like five minutes and leave you more confused than when we started. Uh, but there's an important question here, especially when you start thinking about, you know, the fourth commandment and the Sabbath and all this stuff. As Christians living under the new covenant, are we obligated to obey the fourth commandment? Are we under obligation to honor the Sabbath day and keep it holy? There's basically three views here. One view is yes on Saturday. And so this would be obviously the Jewish view. It would be the view of Seventh-day Adventists, hence the seventh day in the name. Others would say yes, but the day has changed. So the Sabbath for the old covenant was Saturday and the Sabbath for the new covenant is Sunday. And this is typically a view that you would find in a lot of confessionally reformed churches. And then finally, others would say no, Christians are not obligated to obey the Sabbath commandment because that was a part of the law of Moses. And Christians, we are no longer under the law. So, Pastor Nate, what do you think? I, uh, I, I used to hold view number two, uh, that the Sabbath day had shifted from Saturday to Sunday or the New Covenant. I no longer hold that view. I actually hold view number three. I do believe that as Christians, we are no longer under the Mosaic law. And so here's the way that I would frame it. We are not under the Sabbath as a command, but the principle of Sabbath, 
the principle of resting one day in seven and devoting that day to worship and to rest and to refreshment is grounded in creation itself. And so we would be foolish to ignore that principle. So here's the deal. I don't see evidence that Christians are still bound by the command. For example, Colossians chapter two says, therefore let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food or drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. In other words, these are types and shadows that find their ultimate fulfillment in Christ. But as I've said, as a creation ordinance, as a way that God made the world, this principle, this rhythm of work and then resting one day is a part of the way God made the world. It's woven into the fabric of the universe. So you can ignore that as well as you can ignore gravity and see how well it goes for you. And so what does it look like? Well, first of all, I want to show you that the Sabbath is instructive. That's our next point. The Sabbath is instructive. So as we're talking about, as Christians seeking to live within this rhythm, seeking to apply this principle to our lives, we need to first understand that it teaches us many things about the character of God and about the world that we live in. First of all, the Sabbath teaches us that God is the Lord of time, that God is the Lord of time, that time itself is in God's hands and therefore God gets to tell us how we spend our time. Think about it. He's saying, you don't do this on this day. He gets to command how we spend our time. As it says in Psalm 31, 15, my times are in your hand or elsewhere in scripture. It says that our days are numbered, that God is sovereign over time. And just as we are to steward the resources that we have, you know, our money, our stuff, our families, all that, we are also stewards of our time. So do you think about that? God gets to tell you how you spend your time. You have to think about it, it's my time, I'll do what I want with it. No, it's God's. God gets to tell us how to spend our time. That's one thing that the Sabbath teaches us. But next, I think the Sabbath, the discipline of Sabbath teaches us humility. It teaches us humility. As I mentioned already, I think a lot of us can't stop working out of a prideful sense that believing that my world depends on me. That if I stop, if I take a break, if I take my hands off the steering wheel, everything is going to fall apart. I like to call this Martha syndrome. You guys know where I'm going with that? Luke chapter 10. Now, as they went on their way, Jesus entered a village and a woman named Martha welcomed him into her house. And she had a sister called Mary who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching. But Martha was distracted with much serving. And she went up to him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Tell her then to help me. But the Lord answered her, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things, but one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion, which will not be taken away from her. Sometimes we can be busy doing good things, even serving Jesus. So Martha is doing. And Jesus is telling her, you're all spun up and anxious about all these other things, but Mary is doing the one thing that really matters. She is stopping to focus on me. And in this way, the next point is that the Sabbath teaches us what really matters. The Sabbath realigns our priorities with God. Many of us, I think, struggle to stop working because we've bought into the lie of our culture that more and more stuff is going to ultimately fulfill us. So we work our fingers to the bone because I got to have a bigger house. 
I got to have a nicer car. I got to have more toys. I got to have a bigger salary so that I can prove to myself and to everyone around me that I'm important. When we do that, we show that we have been more influenced by the world than we have by God. This is what Philip Ryken said. If we do not receive the gift of God's rest, then we really are still working for Pharaoh. Because Pharaoh's message was more bricks, keep working, no days off. God's message is stop, rest, and enjoy. Final thing the Sabbath teaches us is that God cares for us. The Sabbath teaches us that God cares for us, that God loves his people. Pharaoh didn't care about them. They were slaves. They were numbers. They were a statistic for his own benefit. But God loved them and cared for them, so he gave them the Sabbath. And in the same way, God teaches us to live with this rhythm of work and rest because he cares, first of all, about our physical well-being. Try to work 24-7 and see how it works out for you, physically speaking. We have a few examples of this. We need sleep. We need sleep. God created us to sleep. The national average, you know, the recommendations are seven to nine hours a night. Most of us probably don't get that. But do you realize that before 1879, the average person slept about 11 hours a night? I know I had that same reaction when I read that. You know why? Because when that was when the light bulb was invented and back then when it got dark, guess what you did? You went to sleep. And so no wonder we have all these issues today. We're not sleeping. God created us to sleep. But next, we need a mental break. I saw one study where they took a group of people and over an eight-week period, they said, we want you to just do one thing. We want you to take a day off. We want you to take a day off, basically have a Sabbath for eight weeks. And week by week, we want you to report on your anxiety levels, your stress levels, and your overall psychological sense of well-being. And at the end of that eight weeks, they all reported great improvement in all three of those areas. Why is that? Because Martha, you were anxious about many things. It's often our overwork and our stress that we bring on ourselves because we don't rest that leads to that anxiety and stress. He cares about our physical well-being, our bodies and our minds, but God also cares about our souls. The Sabbath is an incredible spiritual discipline. That's what I would consider it. This is a spiritual discipline that we ought to incorporate into our lives. Why is that? Well, listen, I've talked to people who are like, you know, Pastor Nate, I just don't have time to read my Bible. I just don't have time to pray. You know, sometimes you guys will talk about these books that you're reading. I don't have time to do that. I got too much stuff to do. Well, here's the suggestion. If you had a day that you set aside as a spiritual discipline for rest and worship and refreshment, then you would have plenty of time. You'd have 24 hours a week to get to get alone with God, to get to go deeper into his word, to get to go deeper into your faith. So next, church, we see that the Sabbath is a gift. Verse 29, the Lord has given you the Sabbath. It is a gift for us. And this is how, in my opinion, both in the New Testament times and even in some circles today, this is how the Sabbath gets distorted. When it stops being viewed as a gracious gift from God for us to rest, worship, and be refreshed, and it begins to be viewed as some sort of legalistic checklist of do's and don'ts. This is where the Pharisees got it wrong because the Pharisees had a long list of their own traditions that they added on to the Sabbath command because they were so worried that someone might break it. And so here's the deal. I've heard some people say, oh, you know, Jesus broke the Sabbath law. No, he didn't. 
Jesus perfectly obeyed the law. What Jesus broke were their bogus legalistic add-ons that they added to the Sabbath law in order to preserve it. So think about it. When Jesus healed on the Sabbath, when Jesus' disciples ate on the Sabbath and the Pharisees got so bent out of shape, this is Jesus' perspective in Mark 2.27. He said to them, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. In other words, it is a gift for our good. I'm not preaching this, this idea that you ought to use the spiritual discipline of resting one day in seven to make your life more complicated. I'm doing this because it's for you. It's for your good. It's for my good. It is for our spiritual and physical good. And God loves us enough to teach us this. And as I've already alluded to, the Sabbath is a discipline. It did not come naturally to Israel. It does not come naturally to us. Absolutely, it doesn't. When we start to do this, I guarantee you things will come up. It will be inconvenient. I guarantee you there will be things pulling for your attention and tugging at your heart but we make it an intentional discipline that there is one day a week that we are going to set aside for the Lord. And how can we do this? Well, first of all, let me encourage you to prioritize worship. Prioritize worship. For most of us, it makes sense for Sunday to be the day that we do this, the day that we set aside for worship and for rest. We need to prioritize worshiping God together as the church. And let me challenge you to make that a priority in your life. As it says in Hebrews 10, 25, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another all the more as you see the day drawing near. I hope that you come to corporate worship and that you leave filled, that you leave refreshed because you've heard from the word of God, because you've had fellowship with the saints, because you've sung God's praises And I hope that that is a refreshing and restoring thing for us. But let me make a bold statement this morning. Your attitude toward corporate worship is a reflection of your attitude toward God himself. Your reflection, your attitude toward corporate worship is a reflection of your attitude toward God himself. If you treat corporate worship on Sundays with this, eh, take it or leave it. If I got nothing better to do, if the weather's not nice, if there's nothing on TV, then maybe I'll go once a month kind of attitude that really shows what you think about the God of the universe because the God of the universe is worthy of being worshiped by his people regularly and faithfully. Let's prioritize corporate worship. But next, let's make a commitment to the spiritual discipline of rest. Let's make a commitment to the spiritual discipline of rest. We commit, we say, Lord, you have ordained this rhythm of work and rest in the world, and I'm going to try to bring my life into alignment for that. So how can we do that very practically? Well, I stole this directly from Pastor Andrew Segree in Chesapeake. I told him if I'm going to rip you off, I'll at least give you credit. Uh, he has this in his notes this week, and I thought it was brilliant because it's, it's easy to remember. He says, divert daily, withdraw weekly, and abandon annually. Let's go through those three. First of all, divert daily. Take time every day to divert your attention away from the things of the world and focus on God every day. Get alone with God to be recentered in him, to pray, to read the word, to focus your heart on him every day. But then withdraw weekly. Start this as a spiritual discipline. Take one day every week where you say, I'm not going to work. I'm not going to do my ordinary things, but this day I am going to focus my heart and my mind on God. I think for most of us, Sunday is the perfect day to do that. Uh, For me, it's the worst day to do that. 
because it's the busiest day of the week. Uh, so for me, I literally try to keep the Sabbath day. For me, it's Saturday. I try to devote that day where today, you know, I'm not going to do the ordinary work, but I'm going to focus on my family and I'm going to focus on the Lord. Find the time that works for you and make that a weekly discipline. And then finally, abandon annually. Find that margin in your life and try to get away every year. And I know what some of you guys are thinking. Some of you type A control freak workaholics are probably like, have you seen my to-do list, Pastor Nate? You seen all this stuff that I have to do. How can I possibly take a day off? Well, can I suggest that you'd probably be more happy and more successful and more fruitful for the Lord if you stopped trying to do so much and you focused on what really mattered? We serve a God that can do more with less sometimes. Let me give you an example. And you can't preach a sermon on this topic without bringing up Chick-fil-A, the Lord's chicken. I'm going to whet your appetite for it. And then you got to wait till tomorrow. But here's the deal. Do you realize that Chick-fil-A is far and away the most profitable per store fast food restaurant? And it's not even close. And they do it by being open one less day per week. Just to give you some numbers that I saw, Chick-fil-A being open six days a week averages and profits about 4.1 million per store, whereas McDonald's being open seven day a week averages 2.7 million per store. Now I get it. Part of that is because the food is way better and the customer service don't even get me started. But is it possible that God is just not stupid and God knows what he's talking about? And when God says, if you follow this rhythm, things will go better for you. I think so. I think that's a practical example for us of, man, when we live our lives in accordance with God's design, when we get rid of a lot of the extra stuff that really doesn't matter so that we can focus on God one day a week, things will go better for us. That's what it looks like to rest. The last point this morning is this, as we rest, we remember. As we rest, we remember. This passage ends, the last paragraph, with this command to keep some of the bread as a memorial to the Lord so that they would remember. And there's two things I want you to see here. They would remember God's earthly provision. This is the manna that fed them, that sustained their lives while they were in the wilderness, when otherwise they would have starved to death. They needed to remember every time they saw it that God was their provider. And in the same way, what are the rhythms in our lives that we use to remind us of God's provision for us? To remind us of the way that God feeds us, you know, so with our kids, Every time they sit down at a table, it doesn't matter. It's kind of funny if it's in a restaurant or something. Uh, they immediately burst into song. Thank you, Father. Thank you, Father. You guys know the song. Immediately, I want them to know before they can even talk where that food came from. Not ultimately from me or from Costco or from Los Portales or whatever else, that this food comes from God, that God is their provider. And we need that same reminder in our own lives that God is the one who gives us everything that we need. But ultimately, and this is the main point this morning, as we rest, we remember God's eternal provision. We remember God's eternal provision. God has provided for us something so much greater than just bread. He's given us the bread of life, his son, Jesus Christ, so that we could have eternal life. And I've already mentioned this, but I want to make sure I emphasize here that Jesus is our rest. We come to Christ and we find rest. That's what he said in Matthew eleven twenty eight. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. That in Christ, we find the rest that our souls desperately needed. 
heard Tim Keller say before that when God created the world, he finished the work of creation. He saw that it was finished. And when Jesus finished the work of redemption on the cross and he said, it is finished, now we can rest in him eternally, everlasting rest in Christ. Let me show you. We rest from trying to earn our salvation by our good works, that there's nothing we can do to earn salvation. It is a gift from God. We rest from trying to control our lives on our own, but we live by faith in him. We rest from trying to prove ourselves to ourselves or to other people to prove our value and our worth, but know that in Christ, we are infinitely loved already. Jesus is our rest, the rest that the Sabbath pointed forward to, that we can cease from our labors and rest in him. And in him is the only source of rest. And so here's the deal. Just as Israel kept bread to remember God's provision, church, we also use bread to remember God's eternal provision, don't we? Every time we take the Lord's Supper, every time we take the bread and we take the cup, we remember that God has provided a way for us to have eternal life with him. Jesus is the bread of life who came from heaven that we might have eternal life with him.